Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks for stopping by the tent. It's time for another foray into the world of specialized aquariums or whatever we want to call it. I'm your host, Scott Fellman. And I really appreciate all the support we've received so far and just the, the really many kind words about the, the podcast and fun to hear how uh, a lot of you are listening to us uh, while you're working out or on the way to work or, or whatever you're doing. And that makes me feel really good because that was the whole point is making the, the tin a little more accessible to those of you that maybe don't have the time to sit there and read uh, and maybe want to consume some interesting content. And I hope we've kind of given you some thought provoking ideas or moved you in some way. That's the whole purpose Today I wanted to talk to you about something uh, that is kind of something we've touched on many times before about specifically about fishes and, and appropriate fishes for our aquariums and sort of a tale of uh, a fish that really caught my interest years ago and has sort of kept me going and almost defines to some extent the uniqueness of the approach that we play with here. Um, now, of course, there's numerous approaches to utilizing botanicals in our aquariums and that ranges from just purely aesthetic stuff to you know, tossing in a few twigs and leaves and so forth to full-blown biotope-inspired aquariums which were painstakingly thought out, you know, to recreate every aspect of the form and function of a specific habitat. That's super cool. And of course, we've talked a lot about, you know, creating aquariums that do represent specific habitats. You know, it's the kind of thing that we do here at 10 and all the time. And it's very rewarding and it's really fun and really rewarding to design an aquarium around a specific fish too. That's something that I know a number of us have played with. I've certainly done this myself and something I like to encourage a little bit more experimentation with. And to me, it always takes on meaning when it's a fish that you've really coveted for a very long period of time. Uh, I'll share with you one of my personal holy grail fishes and you can, you can look for it online, maybe see some pictures of it. It's a fish called uh, Cranocus spilurus, the, the sailfin tetra. Now, we've all had that one fish which just sort of occupies a place in our hearts and minds you know, a fish that for whatever reason bites you and never lets you go. And I think that every aquarist, every serious aquarist has had one such a fish in their career, if not many more. Um, now, mine being Cranocus, uh, it, it's just held me forever. Now, as a lover of leaf litter and, you know, botanicals in these natural style aquariums, I'm fascinated not only by the, the niches, but by the organisms which live in it, especially fishes that have evolved to exploit or otherwise populate these kind of interesting uh, natural habitats. And I've went on at length to talk about the relationships between the land and the water and the microorganisms and the fungi and the insects and the crustaceans that add to the diversity of these habitats. And of course, we've looked at some of the fishes along the way. So back to the sailfin tetra, Cranucus spilurus. I know I butchered the name sometime and I think I got this one right, actually. It's a truly awesome fish. Not only is it attractive and morphologically cool looking it has a great demeanor and some really interesting behaviors which separate it from almost every other kerosene out there yeah it's a kerosene related to tetras and, and so forth yet it's almost cichlid like in its behavior it's intelligent it's interactive and surprisingly endearing it has social behaviors which you know will really entertain and even fascinate you if you're lucky enough to get some 
Now, I admit it's definitely not the most colorful kerosin on the planet. Um, but there's more to this fish than meets the eye, and that's what's cool. And it all starts with this really intriguing name. The Latin root of the genus Cronocus means guardian of the spring. Now, that's really cool, really romantic-sounding name, and it evokes all this really cool imagery and even some questions. I mean, does it mean the protector of a body of water, or is it some honorary homage to everyone's favorite season? I'm not sure, but you've got to admit that the name is pretty cool. In Greek, it's Krenokos, the god of running waters, which is even more cool. I mean, that's the shit, right? I mean, do Latin names get any cooler than that? I don't think so. Now, the Krenukidae, that's the, the, the family name, the South American darters, it's a really interesting family of fishes. And it includes, I think, like in around, last count, around 93 or so species in 12 different genera throughout the Amazon region. And most Krenukids are, well, how do I put it delicately, chromatically unexciting that's a fish code for gray and brown and they tend to lie in wait near the substrate typically like leaf litter and aggregations of twigs and branches feeding on insects and microinvertebrates and the genus Cronocus consists of just one species which i think is really cool our little pal Cronocus bolurus which shares these habitats and body shape that are more commonly associated with fishes like cyprinids and cichlids that's just weird right but really interesting now, the relatively subdued coloration actually serves a purpose, of course. These fishes live among leaf litter, tinted water, root tangles, botanical debris, which demands, in other words, if you don't want to be on somebody's menu item, it demands some ability for you to camouflage yourself efficiently. And the sailfin is actually an exception to the drab thing. It's remarkably attractive for a simple benthic living fish. Now, sure, on the surface, it's not the most exciting fish out there, especially when it's a juvenile. It just looks like kind of a brownish tetra or something like that. But it's a fish that you need to be patient with, a fish to search for, collect, hold on to, and enjoy as it matures and grows. As the fish matures in the true ugly duckling style, it literally blossoms into a far more attractive fish. The males have this extended dorsal and anal fin, and it's, you know, they're larger and more colorful than the females, so they're sexually dimorphic. Yeah, the color is relative here, but when you see a group, you'll notice sexual dimorphism right away, even among juveniles, and you'll see that the males are quite interestingly colored. Now, the individuals spend a lot of time sheltered under, you know, overhangs and dead leaves and branches and aquatic plants, and they tend to hover and they don't really dart about, you know, like your typical tetra would. They're not neurotic. In fact, I think their behavior reminds me more of fishes called the dart fishes. I don't know if you're familiar with reef aquariums, but look them up in the dart fishes. Uh, are really interesting. They sort of sit and flick their fins hovering above these little dens that they keep. Often they move in slow, really deliberate motions. It may be a form of communication, perhaps, and I think the Cronucidae are no different. Now, the sailfin feeds during daylight hours. It spends much of its time, you know, sheltering under these branches, but it does venture out into midwater, consuming stuff like particulate organic matter, uh, aquatic invertebrates, insects, bits of flowers and fruits, all those cool items outside from outside of the aquatic environment that we call allotonous input. And those are abundant in the habitats that they live in. And of course, those are things that we like to model, model our aquariums after, aren't they? Yeah, they kind of are. <laughs> and we've written about this topic quite a bit, replicating these habitats of leaves and other botanical materials which the fish live in in nature. Like, I know we talk endlessly about this stuff, but hey, that's what we're here for. Like, how do those guys that sell e leaves and such on eBay, how do, they make the, how do they make such an effort to tell you this kind of stuff that we do? Oh, wait, they don't. That's right. Anyway, 
that was a little dig. I'm getting ahead of myself and that's not cool. Back to my, my little ugly regression here. So further distinguishing the sailfin from all these other kerosens out there is the male's parental care. Yeah, you heard me right. Parental care. Um, they have small batches or small clutches of eggs, usually max out and out at like 100 or so. And they watch after the fishes when they're in their larval phases. And that's characteristic more commonly associated with what, like cichlids, right? Yeah. And this is, a, for all intents and purposes, a tetra. Now, does that pique your interest a little bit? Wait, don't answer that. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> now, my history for the fish is, 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 goes way back. Uh, I first fell for this fish as a kid when I saw a cool pic of it in my dad's copy of uh, William T. Inez's prop, you know, properly titled classic exotic aquarium fishes. That, pretty, that book pretty much assured me from the first time I opened the cover that I would be a fish geek for life. I obsessed over this book. I think I read my dad's copy because my dad was a fish geek. Even before I could really read, you know, I was maybe in pre-kindergarten and I would pull that book out and just oogle and ogle over the pictures and, you know, when I'd pick up a word or two here or there and I just, I zeroed in on this fish. Even in all these black and white pictures, it was pretty cool. And I was hooked from the start, especially when I finally could read and I was reading about the, the romantic, you know, etymology of the name. And it just seemed so mysterious and even unattainable in the 1930s. Well, especially in the 1930s, but it seemed downright exotic. And to this day, it's one that you just don't see too much in the hobby. You're generally not going to walk down to the local fish store and find this fish. You might find it mislabeled somewhere along the line. Occasionally, you might run into one. But boy, when you try to, you know, find it, you have to work. And when I tie that together with my love of those, you know, leaf litter strewn habitats that you see me writing about every day, it's a combo that I just couldn't resist. I never got this fish out of my system. And it took me like 30 plus years of being a fish geek to find this fish in real life. And, you know, I jumped at it as soon as I got the chance. It was so worth the wait. When I opened that bag, I could not believe how incredible those fishes were. It's one of the most engaging and unique fishes I have ever had the pleasure of keeping. And I've kept a lot of fishes over the years. Not not like some of these guys on YouTube that, you know, buy all these exotic stingrays and things like that. But I'm talking about real fishes that a real enthusiast that um, is really dedicated to a certain habitat can appreciate. And I know there's many of you out there. There's some fishes that maybe they don't do it for everybody else, but when you're hooked, you're hooked. Oh, and another thing that's cool about these fishes, they're actually known to vocalize. They produce this audible clicking sound that you can actually hear outside the aquarium. And I would hear this periodically when I'd go into the room where, you know, the fishes were housed and I hear this clicking sound and my, my wife would say, what is that noise? And I'm thinking, that's my little sail fins. And they're, they're communicating, I think. Um, interesting tidbit of knowledge too, that's kind of neat. They possess an organ on the top of their head, which according to the ichthyologist Jacques Guerry, it's comprised of rod-shaped cells encircled by a net of capillary vessels. And the best part about it, no one knows what it's for. Does it have something to do with uh, receiving light radiation from the environment or some type of envir environmental cue so they can stay in touch with each other and maybe create this social order? I don't know. I'm just guessing. But there's a lot we don't know about this fish, except it does have a rather sophisticated ability to communicate by these clicking noises. So more mystery more romance. Yeah, that's cool. Now, although these fishes are a bit solitary in nature, I found that they do really well in groups and they sometimes form these loose aggregations, you know, within the confines of the aquarium and they kind of hover over a given area in the leaf or botanical bed just waiting for food and they become very tame in that respect. And they have a sort of social order that they only seem to understand, but it's really evident if you watch them. Um, they'll take turns eating the food. Um, they'll sort of, one will put 
the other ones in place, it's, it's really interesting to see. It's a fascinating set of activities that makes them even more interesting and more endearing. Now, sailfins might be a bit shy when you first introduce them to the aquarium because they're cautious, rather sedentary caracins, and they don't quite swim as actively as the guys like the neons and stuff. Like, no cardinal-style shoaling, you know, here. Getting them to feed regularly in the aquarium, while not difficult, may take a bit of process because of that cautionary behavior. And they tend not to stray too far from the botanical cover, which is not a problem because being a fish geek that loves all those botanicals, my tanks have a lot of it. (laughs) Think of all the unique ways we could replicate the parts of the habitats that they live in, you know, overhanging branches and branches extending into the water, twigs, leaves, seed pods piled up high, sloping, interesting aggregations of materials and substrate. There's millions of different configurations you can do to to uh, recreate the environment that these fishes come from. Now, if you have other more active tetras and fishes in the aquarium, they'll be a little bit more tentative at first, but as you have these structural features in the aquarium, they'll be more comfortable. And they're decent-sized fishes, and you know they're, they're not little tiny guys. They're two, three inches in, in size. And they'll eventually overcome their initial shyness, and they'll start moving confidently, if not slowly, throughout the aquarium. And they tend never to stray too, too far from whatever they consider their protective root or wood or whatever it is but that's part of their behavior that's my kind of stuff i love it now once you keep this fish i'm pretty confident that you'll just sort of get it and if you just look at the fish and say oh that's what it looks like you'll dismiss them as gray and boring i get it but it's not in my opinion they're one of the most perfect fishes for the botanical style blackwater aquarium especially if you dedicate a system to their lifestyle and their needs you know really set it up for the fish and of course, it will fit in, you know, a well-thought-out natural community of fishes in a botanical-style aquarium, you know, like the less hyper-tetras, maybe some epistogramma, catfishes, that kind of stuff. Now, again, they're really cool when they're, when they're housed correctly, and correctly might mean dedicating a small or medium size, or if you're crazy like me, a larger aquarium just to this fish. They're perhaps one of the only kerosens which I can say confidently has a real personality, which makes them worthy of such an investment and such a commitment of, you know, just an entire aquarium for themselves. Now, I probably haven't sold you on this particular fish, but maybe I've piqued your interest in it, or maybe you say, oh, I've heard of that fish. It never really struck me. And maybe you'll look at them and read about them and maybe see them and think, you know, this might be interesting. I think it's, they fall into that body category of fishes that are really cool, quite interesting looking, maybe not the most colorful thing, but when you don't see them in context, in other words, you don't see them in the right setting, they're just sort of there. There's a lot of fishes that fall into this category. A lot of live bearers, for example, that are just sort of gray with a few dots. And then when you put them in the right setting, it all makes sense. The dots serve a purpose. The gray color serves a purpose, but it's richer. It's more interesting. And suddenly the fish become compelling. And, you know, the photos I've taken of them will probably not convince you to, to buy this fish. So you've got to do some research on it. And you really need to try it. I think you should build an entire aquarium around them just like I do. And besides, if you do, I'm going to hit you up for better picks. <laughs> There's always a self-serving reason, isn't there? But no, really, if you're looking for that it fish that will really make your botanical-style aquarium pop, adding just this real presence and an interest to that habitat, give some real consideration to this fish, you, if you can find it. Trust me, having the guardian of the spring in your aquarium is totally worth the wait, and your botanical-style aquarium needs this fish. And of course, it's only one of many amazing fishes out there that, again, when given the proper circumstances and proper setting are amazing and endearing in a whole different way. You can never get bored of them. You're even remotely tired of them. We all have a fish like that. It's what it's 
you know, keeps us passionate and keeps us active in the hobby. For many of us, the pursuit and ultimately the obtaining and keeping and maybe breeding of these kinds of fishes are what the whole thing is all about. It's how we learn. It's how we share our love of the hobby. It's, it's how we learn about the environment from where the fishes come from. There's so much more to it than just a fish. We all have that one fish. Find yours. Embrace it. Love it. And share it with the world. Stay persistent, stay diligent, stay resourceful, stay passionate, stay relentless on your pursuit of these fish, and always, always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks a lot for spending part of your day with us. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.